The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Holy God, you are indeed great. The song says, How great thou art. It's almost too familiar to us because. In fact, you are very great. We cannot put it into words. But you have given to your children this chief grace that you have opened our eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. You have given to us grace so that we can see some of that greatness, but you far surpass it. Thank you for that grace. Give us more, we pray. Show us who you are. Call us to yourself, Lord. Would you conform us individually and as a people here corporately? Would you conform us more and more to your image that we would see you and understand you and become a little more like you, follow after you, make you known? Lord, this morning, would you grow in us a little bit more, a passion to make you known? Call us to obedience in that, I pray, Lord. Light a fire inside of us so that it's not just dry obedience, but that it is a willing obedience. Give us that grace to see how great you are and to be unable to contain you. To have you flow out of us to others around us. Oh, that's my prayer. Would you do that a little bit more this morning with your children gathered here? And for those here, Lord, who are not your children, would you show them some of who you are, open up their eyes and draw them to you in faith for the first time. Give us grace, I pray, Lord. Exalt Jesus. Save. Sanctify. Be honored. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Obedience to God is a hallmark of genuine, maturing Christianity. It is. A genuine Christian is a person who has been changed at the core, foundationally remade. What was dead has come to life. And living things grow. And so as we're growing now inside, what's happening is that we are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Shaped to be more like Him. Obedience follows from that. It does. It's not perfect. We still have fallen natures. But as we are bit by bit, transformed in our minds, we are conformed to his image. That's how it works. That's what God wants in us. And he is strongly opposed to us faking that. Saw that last week in Acts chapter 5, the beginning of the chapter. He desires genuine holiness, genuine obedience, a conformity inside that then leads to conformity outside. He doesn't want us to fake it. And he acted very decisively in the case of Ananias and Sapphira to show us how he thinks about that. God acted, cleansed the church, the gospel then advanced. Saw that in verses 12 to 16. 
the respect of the outside world for the church, the respect of the church for God, the respect of the outside world for the church and for its apostles, and particularly Peter, grew tremendously. And the mission given to the apostles and to the whole church to make Christ known everywhere, the mission continued on in great success. More people than ever were being added to the name, it says. And of course that led to opposition. So we're going to look at today, continuing on in Acts chapter 5. And with this rising opposition, we're going to see a particular aspect of obedience that's supposed to mark our new community here. In a lot of ways, this passage this morning bears some similarity to the encounter with the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. It's the same people arguing about the same thing, essentially. Witness about Jesus. So there's some similarities. But our passage this morning in chapter 5, verses 17 and following is going to raise some slightly different issues. And my hope, in particular, is that God will meet you and will challenge you at the foundational level of obedience to something in particular that comes out of this. Obedience to his call of mission on your life. The apostles, the church, you, if you're a genuine Christian, we all are under orders. You will be my witnesses foundational verse of this whole book. You will be my witnesses. And the straightforward question this morning is, are you going to obey that or not? Let me read the passage. Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 46. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But... When the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to preach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council, named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, and he said to them, 
men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Verses 12 to 16 describe the very positive outcome of the the issue with Ananias and Sapphira. The cleansing of the church led to a rapid advance of the gospel, and that triggered the opposition that arises in verse 17. The high priest and his associates, these are the same people that we see in the gospels who condemned Jesus, the same people we saw earlier in Acts, Annas and Caiaphas and company. They arrest now all of the apostles. This is a step up from before. Put them in prison. If you're an apostle, this is not a good thing. You've got to be thinking that we have to be walking pretty close to the line with these guys. And they are powerful. We're, we might be in some trouble here. But on the other hand, they have seen such clear and numerous miraculous displays of power poured out on their behalf. Look at all the miracles that were being performed. Masses of people coming to faith. On the other hand, they must know that God is up to something here too. And the miraculous power continues. In the night, he sends an angel, and he breaks them out of jail. And then he tells them something that reconfirms his plans for them. He says, head right back to the temple, pick up right where you left off, and keep going. This clearly, there's something going on here. Clearly, God knows that the authorities are going to find him in the temple again. This is almost in the backyard of where the Sanhedrin is going to meet. It's just very close. They're going to see them. They're going to find them. This is not a secretive move designed to kind of like save the apostles and deliver them and move them out. It's a very public move designed to show something about who is in charge and what he intends for his people. He sends them right back to the temple to preach. That's where they are. Well, verses 21 to 25 unfold what is almost a humorous account. The high priests get together all of, the, all of their friends and the whole Sanhedrin, probably even larger than the Sanhedrin, it appears there are some extra people here, gathers together a whole bunch of people, and when they're all ready, sends to get the, the prisoners, and when they go, they're not there, and nobody even realizes that they're not there. The guards standing at the door don't realize that the 12 men who were inside the room are no longer there, which perplexes everybody. When the captain of the guard finds out and others, they're greatly perplexed, it says. Some people probably fear punishment here. They lost some prisoners. Others are probably afraid that there's a large plot amongst the guards here. Let them go. And others are just confused, not knowing what's going to happen. 
until someone comes and says, I think the people that you're looking for are right over there preaching again to a very large crowd. And they say, oh, good. And then they run off and they go get them very carefully, though, because obviously the people are hanging on Peter's every word and they're afraid they're going to be stoned. So they say, would you please come with us? They're a little more polite this time. And all the apostles agree. That's somewhat remarkable. They agree to go back to the Sanhedrin. They must have surmised that if God sent us back here to the temple, he doesn't mean for us to avoid the authorities. He knows they're going to find us here. He means for us to talk with them. So they agree and they go, and now Caiaphas finally has his chance to grill them, and he's likely irate because they had disobeyed his clear orders, as he says. I told you not to preach about Jesus, and you're doing exactly that, and you are continually trying to lay his blood at our feet. And they say, that's right. That's what we're doing. Because you gave some orders, and someone else gave us some orders, and we have to obey him. We have to obey God rather than men. And Peter launches into his mini-sermon. Now that sermon, notice the sermon is bracketed at the beginning and the end with the idea of obedience. And throughout, it's all about God. We have to obey God. God who raised Jesus. God who exalted him and raised him up out of the shame of the grave, seated him again at the rightful position of authority, reigning over all things. God who gives repentance. God who gives the Spirit. And that God who gives repentance, there's something for us to observe there. I'm not going to spend a long time here because it's not the main focus of the passage, but we need to notice something that Peter just assumes. doesn't explain, just assumes. We need to notice something so that we can understand a little bit more of the gospel in the way that the apostles understand the gospel. God gives repentance, gives forgiveness. We've seen Peter repeatedly preach, calling people to repent. That's clear. We must repent. We must have an internal change of attitude about sin that says, Ah, I see my sin. I don't want it. I want to let go of it, and I want to turn to Jesus. I want to turn and embrace him. That internal heart attitude is repentance. Now, action will follow, but we're talking about a heart change. We're commanded to repent. We must have changed hearts in regards to sin and in regards to Christ. But where does that repentance come from? Peter says it comes from God. Paul says the same thing, 2 Timothy 2. Talking about unbelievers, he encourages us to be patient, saying perhaps God may grant them repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. And it's required of us. Our attitudes must be changed away from sin to Christ, but our hearts are so bent against him by nature that God must give that change. Now, Peter doesn't explain all the theology about how that works together. But notice very clearly, that's what he says. We must repent. God must give repentance. He just assumes that and moves on from it. That's his message. God's done something with Jesus. God gives repentance. God gives forgiveness. God pours out the Spirit. We'll live an edge there on those who obey. 
think there's a little stab, not on you guys. Look around, he can say. Who's the Spirit poured out on? Where is the Spirit dramatically at work? I walk, he's not saying this, he's not boasting, but he could say, I walk down the street and my shadow heals people. Where's the Spirit poured out? On those who obey him. Who's obeying? It's a dramatic proof he's implying there. That's his message. You can see why they're furious. They want to kill them. But a respected Pharisee, this is Paul's mentor, Gamaliel, stands up, puts them outside, and gives some counsel, some advice. Now, what he says here, just because it's in the Bible, does not mean that this is always true. Now, in the long run, of course, it is true that what's of God lasts and what's of man doesn't. But this is just his, his counsel, his advice to them. And he references a couple of historic events that are, are difficult to tie to anything in particular, but there's so much turmoil in, in Palestine at this time that there's no reason to doubt it. He says a couple of guys did this and that, and their leaders died. You know, it just kind of petered out. So let's take it easy. In fact, if you act, you might be found opposing God. I think there's some irony in there, which is why this advice is included, because we know that they are opposing God and that they can't stop him. They jail the guys, they end up back in the temple. They tell them to be quiet, they end up back in the temple. They beat them, they end up back in the temple. They can't stop this. Well, they take his advice, they call them back in, they beat them, they don't kill them, they beat them, and then they release them and the apostles consider themselves lucky, fortunate, who've been considered worthy to suffer for the name. And they carry on from house to house in the temple preaching Christ. That's the passage. That's our text, dealing particularly with the apostles and some specific things that happened to them. But because they are the head, the foundation of the church, and they are fulfilling the mission of the church, if you're actually in the church, if you're a genuine Christian, this is also speaking to you. There's a word here for you in this passage just the same as for them. Here's the main point from this morning. main point I'm going to pull out of this passage. God expects our obedience in persistent gospel proclamation. I'll say that again. God expects our obedience. Christians are marked by obedience. God expects our obedience in this particular way, in persistent gospel proclamation. Persistent, continual, ongoing. He expects us to obey in the mission of making Christ an issue everywhere, among every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, in your neighborhood, to the ends of the earth. That's what he expects of us. It's our job, our assignment, his orders for us. I'm going to bring out three aspects of that central idea. God expects our obedience in persistent proclamation. First, we begin with what God's done. This is amazing if you think about it. God has thrown open the door to life. God's thrown open the door to life. There didn't used to be a door to life. There wasn't any way to get there. In verse 20, he talks about this life. He's not talking about physical life. He's talking about the life that's in the gospel. There is a life out there that most living people don't know anything about. 
and apart from what God's done, couldn't ever get to. Life in here. Life in the soul. Spiritual. Vigor. Joy and peace and hope. God has made all of that possible. God has made that possible. He's thrown open a door. Verse 30 to 32, it talks about how he did that. This is the gospel in a nutshell here. Peter's speaking to Jews about the God of the Old Testament. The God of Israel is the only God who is. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Moses wandering in the desert. The God of Joshua who crossed into the land. The God of the great King David. The God of the great prophet Isaiah. Our God. The only one who is. The Lord. Your God. Raised Jesus. It's really easy for us to yawn at that because we've heard that a million times. If you were in the room that day, it would have been scandalous. Shocking. He raised Jesus? No way. That's the one who is accursed, a pretender, a blasphemer, who made himself equal with this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob again and again and again. And so we judged him and condemned him according to Deuteronomy 21. We hung him on a tree, accursed. And you say that he raised him? That God approved of him? No way. That God vindicated him? That God brought him out of the shame of the grave? And in fact, even you say, raised him up on high and seated him in the heavenlies at the right hand, reigning over all things? That's right. He is the one to whom every knee will bow. The scriptures foretold it. The age of Messiah would come, according to Joel, with the outpouring of the Spirit, with the leaping of the lame, the singing of the mute, the seeing of the blind. Look around, everyone in town knows it has happened. This is the one. I don't like to hear that. But he's done it anyway. And we have to see why he did it. See, all of this, we could argue about this and prove all this out, but if it doesn't come down to what does that mean, it doesn't matter. What does that mean that he's done this? Second half of verse 31. The facts of the gospel, the cross of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, Jesus follows from heaven, takes on a body, comes down to earth, is humbled, goes to the grave, is raised, is exalted back up. Why? So that God can give repentance and forgiveness of sin. If this doesn't happen, God cannot give life. But it did, and he's thrown open the door. He can justly now give repentance. He, he could have given repentance, theoretically. He could have said, I'll change your heart, turn you away from sin, I'll forgive all of your sin. And then someone could have said to him, what are you going to do with the sin? Oh, I'll just ignore it. Oh, then you're not just, and you're not holy, and you're not righteous, then are you? 
See God's dilemma? If he's going to give people a change and take their sin off of them, he has to put it somewhere else. And because of the ministry of Jesus, he has somewhere to put it, and he can now give repentance justly. He still pours out his wrath on sin. Pours out his wrath on sin that's been laid on Jesus for those who trust him. God can now do that. His dilemma is solved. This is good news. This is the gospel of life. Passed on now to us, preached right here, right now, by the Spirit. I'm sure some here this morning have not trusted that and do not know this life. You both must and can You see, there's two things here. You must, because God is just and He will have sin dealt with. You must find a solution to this. You must, and you can. There's good news here too. You can lay all of your sin on Christ. You can turn. The call to you then is turn, repent. Don't don't get caught in some theoretical circle here. Well, I can't repent until God gives me the gift of repentance. That's true, but if you care, repent. And you'll find, he gave me repentance. The call to you is not wait till you get the gift. The call is repent. And everybody who wants to repent can repent. That's how it works. So repent. Turn away from your sin. You can He can save you. He can forgive you. Turn to Christ. Walk through the door to life and live in here. I know that most of us have already done that. Examine yourself closely to see, have I actually done that? Or have I been in church forever and I think I've done that? Be careful with that, but I know that most of us have genuinely done that. What do you do with the gospel then? The gospel's meant to be preached to you too. When you get your head inside of the gospel, it casts all of the rest of life at a different perspective. I have this life here, and I have this life. I live in here. And you run to him to find life amidst all kinds of hurts and sorrows and challenges and confusions in this world. Preach the gospel to yourself and say, God is for me in Christ. He's worked. He's thrown open the door to life for me. I can live. I can know peace. I can know joy amidst suffering. I can rejoice while always in trial. You run there constantly. God has thrown open the door to life. That's the first point. Second thing, though, comes to our response to that. What do we do with it? Well, the first thing you do is what I was just talking about, is you apply it to yourself and you live in it and you get it under your skin. If you're not a Christian, you come to it. Repent and believe. The first thing you do is you apply it to yourself, but it has to go beyond just you because the gospel means something for how you live in community and the gospel is meant to be preached outside of the community to the broader world. It gets to the second point. 
God expects us to persistently proclaim this message of life. God expects us, requires us to persistently proclaim it. Not just to hold it in. It's what he has for us. Notice how this passage presses that point upon us. Apostles, of course, are doing that. That's why they're arrested and jailed in the first place. What happens next, verse 19, God sends an angel, frees them, and spirits them away to safe haven in the desert and says, hang out here until it blows over. Of course not. That's not what he does. Does the exact opposite, in fact. He sets them free and tells them, go right back to where you were before. Knowing that they're going to be found and that this is all going to continue, but he's doing it to illustrate something. More important than your safety is the proclamation of this message. That's the instruction I've given you. The primary instruction I've given you is not protect yourself. The primary instruction I've given you is be my witnesses everywhere. You guys right here in the temple. First light, they obeyed and immediately went and did that and they were immediately discovered. Trying to show us something there. And then when they're face to face with the Jewish leadership, what do they do? They say, we have to obey God. And they proclaim the message again to them. And then after they're beaten and released and warned, what do they do? They go back and they preach the message again in the same place. And then even in more places, house to house, all over the city, they carry on with this. They're bent on this. They've got the picture. I'm under orders. God's acting in my life so that I can do this. I will do it. It's their heartbeat. It's what's on the brain. We have to see that as a church. We have to get that. God expects persistent proclamation from us. We're under orders to do that. Are you going to obey? That's a simple question. Of course, it's not quite that simple. Because as I think that through for myself, a whole bunch of other questions pop into my mind. What does persistence mean? How much? How often? How thoroughly? What, what exactly do I have to proclaim? How much of it? How deep? What if they don't want to hear? Is there any room in my life to just go grocery shopping or to sit and read a book by myself? What does all this mean for all of life? Lots of questions pop into my mind. But if I'm more accurate, I should say lots of questions sometimes pop into my mind. Because lots of times I'm not thinking about this at all. That's the real problem. That's the fundamental question. The, the bottom line thing is, do I actually even think much about the order to be witnesses? Does that even come to mind? What about you? Does it come to your mind? That's the foundational issue that we have to deal with before we get to all the other little questions about when and where and how and why and how much and in what manner. What am I made for? What are my different abilities and gifts? Those are all questions we need to ask. 
But they're secondary questions. The first question we need to ask is, am I sold on you shall be my witnesses? The apostles are sold on that. They look at God put us in Jerusalem to preach in Jerusalem. He got us out of jail to keep preaching in Jerusalem. He put us in front of the Sanhedrin to preach the Sanhedrin. He got us away from that to preach in Jerusalem. What he's doing is so that I can preach. He put you in a particular job with particular colleagues. He put you in a certain neighborhood with certain family members, in certain hobbies, and certain people who cross your path for the sake of persistent proclamation. Do you believe that? That's the first question you have to ask. Then you can ask all the other questions, which you need to ask about, what does that mean that I sit across the aisle from Sally Sue all the time? What does persistent proclamation look like with this? You need to ask that question, and it's going to be a complicated answer, but you're never going to ask that question until you've first resolved, I'm sitting across the aisle from her for a reason. That's the first question you need to resolve. You shall be my witnesses. We quote Matthew 28, As you are going through life, make disciples. It's just what life is about. It's not the ultimate end. The glory of God is the ultimate end. But as we're going through life, we are to be witnesses. If you get over that question, then you can ask all the other questions. And the liberating thing is that then you're in a position to answer them from the, the proper side of the fence, so to speak. Because there are times to be quiet. There are times to just say a little bit or to not say anything at all, to ask a question that's kind of indirect, or to be very direct and go through everything. There are times for all of those answers. What I found for me is that there's a great liberation in being on the correct side of the fence and asking those questions, because then I'm not asking them from guilt or from a desire to wiggle out of it. I'm sold on the first issue. I am to be a witness What would be wise witnessing in this particular instance? It's very liberating to ask and to find out the wise thing to do would be to be quiet right now. It's very liberating. Get there. He expects that of you. Settle the basic question. Been placed here to be a witness. He expects persistent gospel proclamation from his people. Lastly, let me turn to the outcome of obedient, persistent proclamation. Obedience in proclamation will cost you and will bless you. Obedience in proclamation will cost you and will bless you. Right together. You're going to see a cost. It's going, to, it's going to hurt in some way or another. Perhaps physically, probably not. It's going to cost you something, and there's going to be something wonderful there. Both of those things together. We see this throughout the passage, but it especially comes to a head in verses 40 to 42. Obeying God got them thrown in jail in the first place. Then obeying God and going back to the temple got them rearrested. And obeying God and sending after the Sanhedrin finally got them beaten. And none of this is a surprise to them. 
Jesus warned them, warned us, John 15 and 16, the world does not like the Jesus of the Bible. That's the way it is. And so, making him an issue, as the Sanhedrin essentially said in in Acts 4, making him an issue will cost you. God is really clear. That's true. It will. It will cost you. Cost them a beating, cost some of them, and eventually all of them their lives. Cost Christians their lives today in the world. Probably won't cost us that much. Might cost us some public status. It might be a little humiliating. Might cost us some time. And that's a tough one for me, actually. That's probably the biggest one for me to think it's going to cost me time. If I'm going to get serious about this, pursuing people, building relationships with folks, hanging out with people so that I can have conversations, it's going to cost me time from doing things that I would otherwise be doing. It might cost you some friends, which is an issue for all of us, especially for those of us who are teenagers. Might cost you something at your job. Might cost you a client. But it will somehow or another cost you. That's just true. Know that. It's important for us to consider that because if we're honest, right here at this point is where many of our good intentions fall by the wayside. This is where we fall down. Most of you agree with and have heard before most of what I have said already. It's not too dissimilar from things I've said in previous sermons, from things that are even in the book of Acts. You've heard it before. And you're having a similar reaction to it like you have before. You're, You're thinking, yeah, I know, there is a gospel that is... And yeah, I know. I'm under orders. Heard that very phrase before. And I'm supposed to go out and and make that known. I got that too. But here's the deal. People don't like to hear that. I've discovered something. This is a hard thing to do. People oppose me. They don't like this. They're confusing. They're hard to talk to. They're so arrogant. They're so uncommitted, they're so whatever. It's difficult. It costs me something when I do this sort of thing. You look at the cost, you hear all this, and you say, yeah, 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 and you look at the cost, and then pop, all the air runs out of the balloon. And it's over. And you wait for me to close. That's true, is it not? Right here at this point is where many of our good intentions fall down. So what do we do? Here's what I'm trying to do, because I experienced this too. How I'm trying to fight this is to look at the cost and say, yep, there's the cost. That's true. And to keep looking and say, and there's the blessing. Right there. Both. There's the cost, and there's the blessing. They come together, and I can't get the one without the other. And fix my mind on that. Essentially, that's what the apostles are doing here, too. Follow this closely. A 
Upon what are their minds fixed while they are undergoing their beating? Now, probably they're a little bit focused on the beating. But there's something else. The text tells us that something else is on the brain for them. What is it? Verse 41. I'm suffering dishonor for the sake of the name. I'm suffering dishonor for the sake of the glory of Christ. That's what that means. Christ is glorified in what I'm going through here right now. I'm suffering. He's glorified. He placed me, let me out of jail, back to the temple, to the Sanhedrin. He placed me here in this spot that he would be glorified in me. I actually embraced that. I could have gotten out of this any number of different ways, but I actually embraced this. He put me here. He's glorified in this. That's what they're thinking. And that thought brings them great joy. That's the blessing. The cost, you might very graphically, the cost is the beating, and the blessing is the joy. Can't get that without that. They rejoice that they've been placed in this situation. Now, in some sense, we might think this is bizarre. That's a blessing. That's great joy. According to them, yes. They're thinking this through. Perhaps they'd already thought it through. They're thinking through. What's the normal human response? The normal human response is to live for my comfort and my safety, my security, to avoid pain. And here, as I embrace this, as God places me here and I embrace this, what I am declaring is that I love his name. I love making his name known. I love seeing him become the giver of life to other people. I love that more than I love myself. I'm declaring that. Beat me if you like. I love this more than I love my own skin. God is glorified. Christ is glorified when I declare that with my actions and with my mouth. Why is that joy? Because as a Christian, something that's happened to you at the core of your being is that you have been changed, that the glory of Christ is now your greatest love. Not to say that we don't love other things, not to say that we don't sinfully love other things more than we should. But at the bottom level, if you are a Christian, you love Christ's glory. If you don't love Christ's glory, you're not a Christian. You may be an immature Christian and not have figured that out yet. But the more you grow, the more you'll realize, when I live life for myself, it's empty. When I live life for Christ's glory and I see it, I know joy. My favorite quotes from the movie Chariots of Fire. It's years ago, it won Best Picture, I think, in 1980. Still, I love that movie. Famous quote, perhaps you've heard it. Eric Little talks about how, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Doing something because he feels the pleasure of the Lord. Lives and knows joy because God's honored. Think about it like this, perhaps. Imagine that you're a parent 
with children. Paying for and driving your child to countless piano lessons over the course of years. And over all those years, there are plenty of things you'd rather be doing on many different evenings than driving across town, sitting there and waiting and driving back. There are plenty of things you'd rather spend the money on than lessons after lessons after lessons after lessons. And that thought's occurred to you more than once. But years down the road, at some point, you find yourself at a recital. And the room's full of people, and as her fingers fly across the keys, and the music fills the room, and the people applaud, you feel joy. You realize, I'm looking at the fruit of my cost. I could have avoided the cost, and she would have lost the praise, and I would have lost this joy. Now, don't get that analogy wrong. We are not God's benefactors. He does not gain from us. He doesn't need us like a child needs a parent. Don't get that backwards there. See the simple point. I could have avoided the cost, but I paid it. Ultimately, for my joy and for her praise. That is what's going on here. The apostles have it in their mind. We must have it in our mind. I will pay this cost to get this joy. Christ exalted. Christ lifted up. Christ seen as and becoming a life giver to countless people. I'll pay the cost so that that will happen because that is actually how my heart is wired. That's delight for me in here now. Him exalted. Those things come together. This benefit, this joy can't come without the cost. Are you going to obey Him? Fuel this fight by looking at the joy as well as acknowledging the cost. Become sold. I am to be a witness. And then you can ask all kinds of questions about how to do that. Come to Sunday school class and have Brad answer them all. First, you have to resolve this issue. I am to be a witness. He expects obedience in persistent gospel proclamation. Let me pray. God, give us grace. Give us grace to hear what we should hear, to respond to what we should respond to, to believe what we should believe, to see your glory and our joy wrapped up in it. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.